I'm Dave, and this is the Coriolis Effect, the very first podcast from Fiction Suit and the RPG Gods. It may be the only one, depending on what you, the listening community, think of it. Yeah, we're producing this episode just to test the water. We've both been enjoying running Coriolis, the sci-fi RPG, recently published in English by Free League, or Freer Ligan in Swedish. Uh, Coriolis has a big following in Sweden, and Freer Ligan produce their own podcast, but that's mostly in Swedish. So we were wondering if there was enough interest out there to support an English-language Coriolis podcast. This is our very first podcast, though, so this might sound a bit ropey compared to the output of Freer Ligan. Uh, to begin with, at least. We'll get better if you ask us for more, though, and point out what we could improve. Perhaps you want to introduce ourselves and tell our listeners how we got here? I guess we should. So, um, uh, I guess we're getting slightly long in the tooth for gaming. Uh, (laughs) I started uh, in 1978, I think, which is my first year at secondary school. We went to the same school. You weren't there at the time, uh, but I... No, you're, you're, you're longer in the tooth than I am, Matt. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but I did Only meet just. your older brother, who's even longer in the tooth than the two of us. And <laughs> uh, it was a, a boon meeting him and the other role players at school, because the summer before, I'd uh, gone out to buy Dungeons & Dragons, and um, I was really excited about playing it. But when I opened the rules, I didn't understand how you actually played the game and so finding a role-playing group such as the one that was starting at school although I think it was still called a wargaming group there uh, but lots of role-playing games are being played uh, and so playing role-playing games with your brother um, really introduced me to the hobby. We didn't spend much time with uh, Dungeons and Dragons though did you? Oh well that was the main game we played when I started so I uh have to blame my old brother again for introducing me to uh, to, to role playing and D and D in the first in the first instance, and uh, I can still remember it uh, to this day. I would have been eleven, so that was been out nineteen eighty, and uh, Tony played for me uh, Queen of the Demon Web Pits, uh, Q one uh, Dungeons and Dragons thing, and uh, I remember that as if it was yesterday, and it was uh, it w- it was brilliant. And <laughs> I remember right at the end, uh, I got quite excited when. Uh, I had a, a, a Big B's Crushing Hand spell. If you remember the game. Uh, Not on, sure I played Lolth. that module. No, well, Lolth was the, was the, you know, the demigod, demon, spider queen thing. And uh, I, had, I had this spell which crushed her. And in the last, half, half of my party was dead. And I needed an 8, 9 or 10 to kill her on the last roll, which was effectively the last thing I could do. And I rolled an 8. And 11-year-old me was, uh, was sold on Dungeons and & Dragons and role-playing from that, from that point on. That's brilliant. Yeah, we didn't, uh, as I say, uh, we didn't spend much time with Dungeons and Dragons. We moved mostly on to Traveller quite quickly after Dungeons mm. and Dragons. Um, uh, our Tony's friend John used to run a lot of Traveller. Um, so we spent a lot of time in the future uh, as opposed to in a fantasy world. We did do some our fantasy gaming, though, was mostly RuneQuest. And then yeah. uh, there was well, a by, point... Well, by then... By then, I think I'd come along, hadn't I? Because you, because uh, you had your uh, Saturday afternoons with tea and donuts from Mrs. Jones at uh, at your place. Yes. And the 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 high food war gamers, as we became known. And I remember coming along to that because everybody else there was three or four years older than me, and I was the sprog. And uh, you didn't just tell me to bugger off, which is which is always nice. 
No, no. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, we welcomed you with open arms or tolerated you. One of the two. I can't remember. <laughs> and and we did it. We, we played all sorts of games there. Um, I, I'm remembering especially some excellent Call of Cthulhu that you ran. We did do a lot of Call of Cthulhu, didn't we? That was good. I do remember as well. Uh, and I, I, still, I still have the copy of it. My old book of Villains and Vigilantes. And I remember playing that when I was playing The Red Devil when I, again, was about 12 or 13. That was good. Got a lot of good memories of that one. Uh, the superhero game I particularly remember that I think both you and I ran versions of was Golden Heroes. Yeah, from Games that Workshop. was good. Yeah, yeah with, um, uh, with, with my character Ironclad dying bravely, having trying to capture someone and then being taken up into the sky and being dropped. Oh. <laughs> not, uh, not surviving it. Oh, well. oh dear, always... despite your armour, despite your armour. Uh, what armor. else did we play? Yeah. Uh, apart from Call of Cthulhu, I ran Rollmaster. Yeah, you ran Rollmaster. I did Judge Dredd. Which oh, you yes. Remember, we, t- we, took, we took my Sand Harvester scenario from there to Games Day. Must have been about 1985. Oh, it did. I've uh, still got a copy of that somewhere. So have I. So have I, because we did that little uh, uh, handbook, wasn't it? Was it? Songs of Sorrow or something you call uh, it? Songs of Blood and Sorrow, that was. Blood and Sorrow, that was it. Fanzines. With the picture, um, with the, with it, picture you drew on the front of a judge standing at the front going, bots, what bots, with this it, giant robot coming out of the darkness behind him. That's, that's yeah. still got that picture, that's excellent. Uh, excellent. That was, and we, we, we managed to sell every copy of that, I think, when we were at Games Day, yeah, apart from the did. ones that we kept. we did. Yeah, um, that was good. I'm just trying to think of so, other games we've played. Cyberpunk. Uh, did a bit of cyberpunk, didn't we? Yeah, songs still played a lot of traveller, lots of traveller, lots, loads of traveller over the years. Uh, uh, Pendragon, more, more, of course. Ah, Pendragon, that's nearly 30 years of Pendragon on the same campaign, yeah. on the same campaign, on my second character. Yeah, who, you're uh, playing uh, your first character's son. I think I'm on to my yeah. first character's great grandson now, or is it great great grandson? <laughs> uh, great great, I think, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. it's a tough anyway, life. Anyway, it in is. Dark it ages. is. Um, and that brings us up to uh, well, more recent times. Uh, well, let me just ask. I can't quite remember what happened when you went to university because I know that when Tony went to university, I didn't. I I, I yeah. went off to work. So um, well, I I I didn't really play so much then. So I had a D and D group at uni. Um, we used to play a little bit, um, but. In terms of, of the old crowd, um, I still kept up with Mike and Roger, um, and we were playing. We were playing quite a lot of Cthulhu. Then, um, that's when I had my uh, my werewolf character, which is really cool in Cthulhu. That was fun. Uh, <laughs> playing a werewolf in Cthulhu. Mm. Well, overpowered isn't the word. Uh, <laughs> so Roger let us get away with that one, but uh, <laughs> but no. More uh, recently. Um, yeah, yeah, so we, we've been. Go on. I was going to say I I didn't do any role playing at all when I was at university, which kind of goes against pretty much everybody else's experience. Um, and uh, came you know I whenever we came back for holidays, um, we'd all meet up and have a game or two, and I guess that's kind of kind of carried on as we've drifted further apart from school, as it were, because we're all geographically. Uh, distant now but we still do get together a few times a year to have a game don't we yeah we do we do and that's uh that's great and those so we're running uh, i'm running my songs of ice with fire campaign with you tony and uh, andy and house orca 
uh, and then Pendragon. Um, L5R is another game, Legend of the Five Rings, which uh, Tony is running for us. Now that's a game I hadn't come across until about a year ago, uh, on, on your recommendation, I think, Matthew. And it's yeah, and I heard about that one. on a podcast as well. So uh, topic, what goes topic around for comes another, around. Topic for another podcast, maybe uh, in due course. But that's a that's a cracking game for anybody who's uh, who's not seen it. Go and have a look. It's well worth the effort. Yeah, although um, difficult to find now um, because uh, they've stopped publishing it for the moment and they've uh, sold the rights easy. to to oh Fantasy Flight. So we're waiting uh, to okay. see whether they decide uh, to produce okay. another role playing version of it. Well, Fantasy Flight's a pretty good good company overall. Produced some pretty good stuff. So yeah. maybe there's maybe there's some hope there. There may be hope there. Um, but moving sort of a bit more to the present day. So how do we come across Coriolis? Um, well, uh, well, I came across cause... Coriolis when you made me back the Kickstarter. <laughs> but um, you've got a bit of history with a very similar system. I do indeed. So back in December 2015, I think it would have been, uh, I was looking for Christmas ideas for me. And so I went up to London and had a nose around Orcs Nest, the shop there. Um, recommend it to anybody who hasn't been there. Um, so I was having a look around and I, and, I, and I found one game that I thought, oh yeah, I'll, I'll get that and give that you know, to myself for Christmas, give it to my wife to, to wrap for me. And then I saw Mutant Year Zero and I thought, yeah, never heard of this before, but it looks cool. I'll give it a punt. Good quality book. Uh, always a good thing, a good quality book. And so I got those. And I haven't opened the other game ever since. because well, I've got to Year ask Zero... you, what was that other game that didn't get your vote? Uh, uh, it was called... Uh, hang on, it's on the shelf here somewhere. Uh, Outbreak Undead. And I haven't yeah. really given it a good crack of the whip, because I haven't even... I opened Mutant first and didn't look back. So I ran a couple of campaigns of, of Mutant Year Zero... Um, got my son into it, who's running his own campaigns, and I just loved the 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 the, the, the new way it looked at running. You know, the mechanics were different; they were simple but still complex enough with some nice twists to to make a game run really well and be a lot of fun. And it also lent itself very well to small pieces, uh, smaller sessions. So the sessions that we play, Matthew, as you know, you know, it's a weekend; we spend the whole day at it. These fit really well. Down for a, down the pub for an evening, um, so it, it fitted really really well, and I and I loved it. So when Coriolis uh, came up uh, as a Kickstarter, um, but before I say that, I had backed the um, Mutant Year Zero expansion, the Gen Lab Alpha one, which I haven't run a campaign of yet, which I really want to. But I, I backed that, and again, similar quality, similar excellent production value, and the game's brilliant. Um, but when Coriolis came up, I didn't hesitate. So when you asked me in an email, oh, should I be backing this Coriolis thing or what? Uh, I can't remember what my response was, but it was hell yeah. It had expletives in it and um, your recommendation that I should. Yeah. And I had said um, the, the Kickstarter campaign was coming to a close and I'd kind of said, well, if you're going to be running this, maybe I should kick in for the PDF. And you said, no, 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 don't, don't kick in for the PDF <laughs> because I want you to run it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you 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 complain that all the games you're ever interested in, actually, you have to end up running. You know, and you'd rather <laughs> be playing in them. Yeah. And in a moment of madness, I uh, did something that you wanted, which is very very. <laughs> That's um, a first, yes. And it kicked in, but I've been, I have to say, pleasantly surprised. You know, for a game that 
I had no interest in. I, you know, I haven't been playing your Mutant Year Zero campaign no. uh, at all, so I knew nothing about the system. Um, bought on the spur of the moment, and I possibly had, I guess, the same reaction that you did on opening um, uh, Mutant Year Zero, in that I very rarely read any set of RPG rules all the way through, but this is the one that I read from beginning to end, which, given, you know, that English isn't the first language of the guys that wrote it, that's a pretty impressive um, mm. yeah. commendation, I think. Absolutely, yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, if, for those of our listeners who haven't seen it yet, uh, it's it's a deeply detailed book, um, um, but in a good way, not a bad way. There's there's lots of uh, setting material. There's lots of context, uh, and the rules themselves are, um, on the whole, really well produced and set out. Um, particularly if you've got the PDF uh, as well as the hard copy, if there is something you need to find, you just search it on the PDF and you find it straight away. So, it's actually a pretty accessible book as well as being uh, a damn good game. Cool. Now I'm noticing we're already up to a runtime of 14 minutes with this. It- and we had promised yes. to try and keep this one to half an hour. Um, so uh, we ought to explain, we're seeing this podcast, if it has a future, as having a future that's a mix of discussion and slightly more scripted presentation. And we've thought of all sorts of topics that we might cover in future episodes if um, if you, our public, demand it. <laughs> yeah, well, there's lots of things I'd want to talk about. Things like uh, expanding upon the setting, uh, how uh, how you use XP in the game because Matthew and I both have slightly different views on it. Um, my my approach doesn't involve begging. Whereas yeah, Matt my does. approach does involve players <laughs> begging for XP. Yeah, and I yeah, think I can okay. quote you chapter and verse in the rule book about where they say that. I know, I know, but as they also say, uh, modify the rules to suit your own games. Uh, yeah. So I've done a little bit of that. Um, other things like uh, we could talk about use of darkness points because that's a new concept which I haven't seen uh, elsewhere really which I think will be a, a future podcast discussion because there's uh, yeah I think there's a lot to say today. about darkness points but um, um, we'll save that for another time and things like uh, ship combat is a bit different in this game to others it's really quite interesting and <laughs> one thing that Matthew and I have already discovered uh, making new talents or uh, following the player's desire for different things in terms of talents. Um, so we might have a talent of the month feature, uh, which would be uh, our musings on what new talents you might want to put out there. Uh, so, yeah, as an example, here's a bit of setting material that, um, that, that Matthew's prepared for us. One of the things I love about the setting of the Third Horizon is that it doesn't have one overarching government. No alliance, no federation, no empire, evil or otherwise. The clash of cultures, first Cam and Zenithian, Dabaran and Zalossian, creates all sorts of story opportunities. If your players choose the role of lawmen of any sort, there is all sorts of story fun to be had when a case takes them out of their jurisdiction. But there may be times when the bureaucracy of jurisdiction gets in the way of a good story, rather than adding fun complications. When my players chose to become bounty hunters, I wanted a framework which would allow the story to take them across the horizon. Forgive my pronunciation as I share it with you. The Ijma Earth, or Consensus of the Common Law, is a first-come initiative, 
a complex web of treaties and agreements designed to protect local laws and customs from being superseded by Zenithian legal structures. Its most tangible face is a system of licensing police, detectives, bounty hunters and debt collectors to operate across jurisdictions. It costs about 100 burr per Coriolis cycle to maintain an Ingmerhurf licence, but that also gives access to a database of bounties, private detective jobs and appeals for pay cops. The database is also meant to be an intelligent sharing network, but, as might be expected, where lawmen are also competing for jobs, they are reluctant to share valuable information. An Ijma Earth licence does not by any means guarantee the cooperation of the local authorities, but it may delay arrest or shorten jail terms if the holders manage to get themselves in trouble. What it allows is interpreted differently in different jurisdictions, but it does at least, in most places, identify the holder as an agent of the courts or law. Local law enforcement authorities usually resent Ijma Earth when off-worlders invoke it on their patch, but they're eager to demand it if a case takes them outside their jurisdiction. Of the factions, supporters of Ijma Earth include the Free League, the Legion, Alarm's Temple, the Church of the Icons and the Nomad Federation. It also has somewhat less enthusiastic support from the Consortium, who constantly seek to reform it. The Draconites and the Order of the Pariah ignore it, and of course it has no influence over Zalos. The Syndicate, of course, are absolutely against it, and the Zenithian hegemony recognise it for what it is, an attempt to thwart their ambitions. They seek to abolish it, but while it exists, begrudgingly accept it in some places, for example, the Monolith. Despite their paymaster's attitude towards it, the Judicators are enthusiastic signatories. The Weeping Matriarchy are also participants. The Coriolis Guard are less enthusiastic, but they see its benefits. Special Branch consider themselves above this particular law. So, how, how, do, you find, how do you think that all works in the setting then, Matthew? Um, well, it's not really meant to be a bit of... Um, rules as such apart from you know the fact you can buy um buy a license for a mm. uh, 100 burr it's really just meant to be there so that moving into a new jurisdiction isn't always a pain in the arse of the players <laughs> yeah. sometimes you know uh, if if uh, bureaucracy uh, and and an obstruction can be a useful challenge for players in you know, getting to their aims or for player characters um, but not all the time. And one yeah. of the things that really worried me about the setting, although I love the setting very much, is that it was difficult to say, here's how, for example, adjudicator can work on other parts, in other parts of the verse. Yeah. Um, there is within, I don't know if you've read the little novel that was, or the novella, I should say, that was produced for the original version of Coriolis that you can get on yes. Kindle. Yeah, I've but, been reading through that, yeah. But there you can see that the, the adjudicator did have, uh, was able to fudge, um, shall we say, uh, <laughs> jurisdiction when she went down to the monolith. Yes, uh, yeah. But, you know, you know, that can be fun. It can be fun. 
to obstruct PCs with a bit of bureaucracy, but not all the time. So this was just a simple way of saying, here's how everything can work if you want to make it easier for your PCs. Yeah. yeah. But there are enough exceptions in there, like Zalos, and in fact, people just, the people's attitudes to Imjahur, I can't even say it myself now. Uh, Ij- <laughs> I'm not even going to try saying it. <laughs> Ijma Earth, um, uh, which is a proper Arabic word. It really does mean uh, consensus of the common law. Um, the, you know, there's enough interpretation around that so that I can make it difficult for, for PCs if, if the story demands it. Yeah, I think it's quite a good idea in the sense that it, it, it routinely smooths the way a bit for uh, what will be actually my group of characters in, uh, in your campaign. But yes, which is which also, is of course the big thing. I had planned. It, it, it to... also it also leaves you so it also leaves you uh, as a referee as a GM having to spend those darkness points to screw us up a little bit, which is exactly what they're there for. That's a good point, actually, and I think you yeah. could well say that um, if somebody's got a license, then maybe the GM would have to spend darkness points to make it more difficult for the players. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good idea. Yeah. Ah, Matt, good tip. Good tip. So. Um, I just want to move on to another bit of a topic to discuss, um, kind yep. of more up to the minute, because uh, I've been reading a discussion on uh, the excellent G plus group for this game about the chances of rolling a six. Isn't it one in six? <laughs> well, it is. <laughs> but um, both, uh, you know, we played a game. You played uh, the first scenario of my campaign, what, just a week or two ago. Yeah. And... I don't think any of you felt you were incompetent as player characters, but I have seen both discussion on G+, and actually I've listened to an actual play where I think the players were feeling a little bit like they weren't as competent as their character sheets said they should be, yeah. simply because on uh, luck went against them on uh, that particular turn, as it were, and although they might have rolled a lot of dice, they didn't roll many sixes. Yeah, and okay. you've got more experience with the system than I have, so I was wondering what your thoughts were. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I I've run a couple of mutant campaigns which have a very similar dice mechanic to, to Coriolis, and uh, and I'm now into my third third scenario in my current Coriolis campaign. And for those of for those of you out there who don't know, um, you have uh, uh, an attribute, uh, strength or agility, and you have a skill. Uh, and the, then you get bonus dice for equipment. So you get a pool of d6s uh, based on those uh, those values, and you roll them all, and every six you roll is a element of your success. So one six is, you've just managed it. Two sixes is, yeah, that's a good success. More sixes than that, and you're getting into critical territory, and you can you can work out some exciting, interesting things to do uh, with, uh, with your success. Now, there is, in both Mutant and Coriolis, the, uh, the option to push your dice, but there are consequences. What push means in Coriolis is if you didn't get enough sixes, you can then pray to the icons and they will let you roll all the dice that you didn't roll a six on, so you can get more sixes. But that gives the referee, that gives the GM a darkness point. And basically the darkness points allow the GM to be a bit of a, bit of a sod, frankly. They can use them to make your life difficult. So maybe some of these players are, are, are being very resistant to the, to the, to the idea of rolling, uh, pushing the dice in order to, to get more successes. In our game, we played a couple of weeks ago that, um, that you ran, Matthew, 
I think we ended up with seven darnest points at the end of the evening. But yeah, so I, now, was... I, I purposely didn't spend any darkness no. points that scenario because I wanted to take a step back and kind of just watch how the darkness point economy um, s- sort of turned out. So yeah. uh, not having spent any, it was very easy to count how many times people had pushed the dice. There were three of you playing. You what, we played for five, six hours. Something like that, yeah. Something like that. And... Um, yeah, uh, between you, you you decided to pray to the icons uh, uh, seven times. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, actually, you talk about push, isn't it? It's called pushing in Mutant Year Zero. It's called prayer in yes. Coriolis. And of course, uh, that reflects on the two very different stories those games are trying to tell. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I should get my language right, shouldn't I? In Coriolis, it is. It's a it's a literal prayer to the icons, and the icons who do exist in the third horizon reach down and change things for you, give you another chance. Whereas in Mutant, you are pushing your body and your mind when you re-roll the dice, and that can damage you, but that can also release more mutant powers. So you can only so get new mut- you can only get new mutations by being broken through pushing. Uh, uh, so I'm interested to know, obviously they don't have darkness points in Mutant Year Zero, so what is the push mechanic exactly? You roll the dice again, What do you? what's the cost for that? Yeah, so um, on, uh, on, on the dice set you have, so Mutant Year Zero uses a, a specialist set of dice. It, it's not just use your D6s, but you can use D6s. And on those dice you have uh, success, um, failure, which is damage to yourself, and damage to your gear. So if you roll, the first time you roll, any dice that comes up as a failure but damage to yourself doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't play, doesn't count, doesn't, doesn't count for anything. Only when you push, you're not allowed to re-roll those dice, and each one of those translates into damage. So you end up, um, you might roll your first set of dice on something that's really important, you get one success, you get two damage, but you need more than one success. So in pushing, you know you're going to at least take two damage on that particular stat. So it's uh, it's a mechanism that you can see how how much it's going to hurt succeeding. And on those dice, um, what one of the faces is a damage face. If you score one, it's damage, is it? Yes, absolutely. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a really that. good mechanism. It's a really good mechanism. But I quite like the uh, the way they do it in Coriolis, which changes the emphasis. So in many games you have fate points or destiny points or glory points that the players can then spend to get themselves out of out of trouble. That's fine, it's all well and good, but it's quite a well-used mechanic now. Coriolis turns it on its head. The players don't have fate points to do that. They can call upon the icons to help them out of a sticky, sticky position, but they then give that fate point to the GM to use later on. So it's a, it's a nice dynamic twisting that fate point idea on its head. Yeah, yeah. And of course, we didn't mention earlier on that um, we're also in the process of finishing off my fate campaign. So you're speaking from experience when you talk about fate points. Um, (laughs) Yeah, literally. So, yeah, and that's all part of the setting, isn't it? And I like the way that Free Ligan have um, made uh, the same basic system with just subtle adjustments, something that really reflects a very different setting uh, and the religion being such an important part of Coriolis. But in fact, um, there's more about the setting, isn't there? The setting isn't quite as fixed as it might be. 
Um, no, not no, not at all. And you've been doing something in your campaign that I've not had the need to do yet. Uh, yeah. And that's used the random system generator. So yeah, let's indeed. listen to your thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. Let me tell you a little bit about the iWAS system. One jump from Kua and the Coriolis station, a binary star system of nine planets and a sweeping asteroid belt. A system controlled by one faction, but with two others more or less covertly jostling for power and influence. Arriving in the system, we first come to the planet Trini, orbiting close to the star known as Iwas A. Slightly smaller than Earth, with lower gravity, but not so much you'd stumble all the time, and a decent if windy atmosphere over a mountainous and arid land. Not many live here, a shade shy of 100,000 all told, clustered in the Trini Bazaars, the bustling trade hub of the Iowa system that sits in the burning shadow of Mount Kalila Mardinwa and its infamous fire lakes, the home of mischievous gin and fire sprites. But all is not peace and calm on Trini. The first-come Draconites hold the planet in their grip, but the Legion is inciting unrest, and the Zalosian Order of the Pariah, their interests only one portal jump away, keep a sinister presence watching and waiting. Further afield, the Legion possess a not-so-secret military settlement in the far reaches of the orbit of Iwase's sister star, on a tiny frozen planet called the Gate. And the Zalosian Zealots are showing interest in the planet known as the Twins, a lifeless place whose moon is almost as big as the planet itself, and where prophecy tells of a great portal builder legacy much treasured of the icons. All that and more from a mere handful of dice rolls, which goes a long way to explaining what the Coriolis system generator and a little bit of GM imagination can do. So as a new Coriolis GM, you open up your pack, unravel the glossy map of the Third Horizon, and marvel at all the systems and worlds out there to populate. It makes the Atlas Compendium a vital source for Coriolis GMs, and one that is well worth the money. And no, I'm not on commission, and not yet anyway. You could, of course, make up all the details off the top of your head. But if you're a combination of lazy and geek, just like me, you'll enjoy seeing where the dice takes your universe. So let's take the iOS system and Trini, and how I came to know the planet so well from just a few dice rolls. The first thing I want to say here, though, is you don't have to follow the material in the books. Free Legan go a long way to tell us that we should mould our version of the Third Horizon to meet the needs of our own game. Good oh, that makes sense, and what every experienced GM will be doing anyway. But they give us two cracking references that make a great starting point. First, turn to page 301 of the Coriolis book, and that gives us some key system information, such as the number of stars, distances, number of planets in the system, asteroid belts, gas giants, and so on. And this is augmented by the Third Horizon map, which adds some colour to that info in the form of notable things in each system. So in the case of Iwas, these are Iwas Mator, the Eye of the Dancer Temple, and the Fire Lakes. Cool, great, I wonder what they are. And that's just it, you have to wonder, as the books offer you no further information than that. But that's okay, you can make them whatever you want. The exceptions to this rule, though, are the big seven systems that are covered in the core rulebook and the Atlas Compendium. But remember again, you don't have to use this information. If you don't like it, you can change it. So, imagination at the ready and dice in hand, I started with the planets orbiting the main star, Iwas A. 
Following the reference stuff in the book, I had four planets about this star, three rocky and a gas giant. And the first of these we came to was Trini. Planet size comes first. I rolled an 8 on the 2d6, just above all these rolls are 2d6, which made Trini slightly smaller than Earth with a gravity of roughly 0.7g. Sort of normal, but that's absolutely fine. Next I rolled for what's in orbit around Trini, and rolled a 6. Nothing. Okay, so far, so exciting. The next roll of 5 meant Trini has a breathable atmosphere. Excellent! At least I'm not rolling a barren rock with nothing of interest for my first ever planet. Next up were temperature and geosphere. By this point, I was thinking that, as my first planet, Trina would be close to the star, and close to the portals. So my roll of double one for temperature, meaning Trina was frozen, didn't really fit my emerging idea. So I fixed that roll, and gave the planet a nice temperate at atmosphere instead. Well, I am God in my version of the third horizon after all. That tallied nicely with the geosphere roll of four, making Trini now both warm and arid, and helped me weave in the fire lakes idea, as a rumbling volcano near the Trini settlements, with lakes of lava rumoured to be populated by spirits and genie. Rolling for population in the spaceport sealed Trini's fate as a planet of shopkeepers and traders, as I rolled nine for population, in the tens of thousands, and another 2d6 roll of nine, telling me it was 90,000, and an 11 for the spaceport, revealing it as a trade cluster. Perfect. Now I needed to populate Trini with people and factions. A roll of four on the factions table told of one dominant faction, which became the Draconites, and one weak, the Legion, working to destabilise the system and allow the consortium to move in. As the system was next to Zalos, and my players are heading in that direction, I decided that a subtle Zalosian present might also give me some interesting plot lines to think on. And so they appeared as a third faction, not competing with the others, but just meddling. The last thing the system generator offers are random plot hooks that suggest interesting things like ancient ruins, uh, natural disasters, different types of inhabitants or threats. As I was rolling the system in advance of a specific scenario and had a really good idea where that scenario would go, I didn't make use of the hook tables on this occasion, but they offer plenty of pointers and I'll draw on them in future. The whole process can take as little as two or three minutes, or as long as you want it to. Which does bring me to my closing point. When and how to go about generating your third horizon solar systems. Coriolis, very much in the style of Muted to Year Zero, where GMs are encouraged to roll up zones as they go, offers you as the GM the mechanism to roll up planets on the hoof during games as the players find them. I don't do that. I didn't do that in my mutant campaigns, and I don't do it in Coriolis, and I'll tell you why. Every time a GM stops to do something that isn't helping the game along or involving the players, the focus, the momentum, the tension are all lost. Rolling up planets or zones in mutant fall squarely into this category. Doing it in advance does take a little bit of time to anticipate and prepare the ground, but it's not such a great effort and it rewards you as GM with a chance to think up lots of new ideas as you go. What I don't do is spend a whole weekend rolling up every system in the third horizon. Now that wouldn't be so much fun. But, as my campaign sees my players travelling, I've been rolling up system by system as they've started to get close. And as we travel along together, I'm building up my own compendium of the Third Horizon, ready for when the players return again to once-visited shores. So, uh, that, that's really interesting, Dave, but 
uh, it's really sparked my interest about your campaign. Uh, what's happened in your campaign so far? I've got to say, guys, I'm not a player in this, so I know nothing. <laughs> yeah, so this is this is a campaign that I play down the local pub with a few of the uh, few of my friends down there, my brother. Um, so, so thus far, the, the the group are a uh, a group of smugglers, and they have um, they have a cursed ship called the Spectral Spectral Corsair. Um, it was quite interesting, actually. It, it demonstrates how quick and easy Coriolis can be about throwing in a quick game. So, the campaign, uh, the campaign I'm running, uh, which I've called the Patron's Cat, is uh, basically came about out of the blue, really. So, the first night we were were, were playing uh, down the pub, rolling up characters, rolling up the spaceship. And we had about an hour and a half left, so I thought I'd just throw in a bit of a, a bit of an incident, which took them from Kua. Uh, where the Coriolis station is, down to uh, Lubao, one of the other planets in the Kua system, to retrieve an item for their patron. They didn't know what this item was. So they went down there. They had a bit of a fight, because obviously somebody else was after it as well. And when they, when they received the item, it turned out to be a cat. Now, I just put that in as a bit of a joke at the end of, a, end of an evening down the pub. But what that turned into was a campaign where they are now, on behalf of their, uh, on behalf of their patron going to uh, a destroyed system, a system destroyed in the portal of walls called Odicon, to try and find their patron's brother and to, to convince the patron's brother that it's safe for him to come home and his brother's forgiven him, they're taking the cat, which is uh, this fellow's favourite pet, um, which he left behind when he fled for mysterious reasons. So this well, is Obviously, though, they'll be putting the cat in stasis for the journey, won't they? They will, but I've added a little dynamic there, which is that um, cats don't survive very well in stasis. So if they leave him in stasis for the whole journey, he'll die. So they can only put him in when they do a portal jump and then take him out again straight away. So I tried to get around that. I say him, it's a her, actually, because the cat's pregnant. Um, they found out <laughs> the cat's pregnant. They've been told by somebody that the cat is possessed as well. So uh, they've got this, what they think is a kind of ticking time bomb on their hands um, and they're sort of counting down the days. Uh, until the cat gives birth. Quite what that'll mean for them, uh, I don't really know yet. Um, it could mean kittens. It could mean the darkness between the stars. It could mean curtains. Yes, exactly. <laughs> kittens uh, or curtains. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my, my aim behind this campaign was to get them travelling. They're traders, they're smugglers. So I wanted to get them uh, running a few portal jumps and uh, experiencing different parts of, uh, of the Third Horizon. So they had two choices. Um, one of the, the captain of the ship is an ex-pirate. And so they had a choice of going through the system where all his pirate brethren were, who he's betrayed and left. Uh, he decided not to do that. So they're going the long way around um, through Iwaz, which was obviously the subject of the, uh, uh, of the, of the little piece just now, um, and then through Zalos. So they've, they've ended up in Zalos. They've uh, rather pissed off the Zalosian uh, authorities because they're carrying a passenger who is wanted as a witch um, and they've now uh, disappeared into the depth of the Zalos system fleeing the uh, the authorities who are trying to track them down and that's where they are at the moment in their long journey to Odicon in the hope of finding this uh, this fellow, the, the patron's brother. So it's good. I, in terms of the gameplay um, I've found combat, ground combat, hand-to-hand um, -hand combat or you know shooting, uh, they've done very well uh, surprisingly well. They they weren't supposed to immediately assault the Zelosian 
people who boarded their ship um, uh, coming for their passenger, but they did. And they killed three of them and captured two of them. Um, they weren't supposed to then try and flee the uh, two Zelosian cruisers who were sort of watching over them. Um, but they managed that as well, partly because one of them, uh, or two of them, have got the same talents. And there's a talent called the Deckhands talent. And that's basically uh, a repair the ship talent. So they don't have to do anything. If the ship goes down to zero hull points or no energy, the icons just step in and give them 1d6 back straight away. So these Zalosian ships are pummeling them with missiles only for the icons to say, no, when you're not destroying them, I don't care how many missiles you fire at them, uh, and they manage to escape. So interesting lessons for me around uh, trying to balance the, uh, the, the difficulty of the NPCs and the NPC ships against actually what, what they have available to themselves. And I'm only really beginning to understand the, the strength of some of those talents and some of those abilities. But it works, I mean, it works really well. Um, I do have a lot of darkness points to spend. I've got 12 or 14 to spend. And um, as I said, we'll talk about this in another podcast, but I'm, uh, I'm finding it quite difficult to, to balance um, making good use of those without making it look like I'm just spoiling the player's fun. Because I think there is a risk in darkness points if they're not used wisely, that the referee, the, the GM, could look like he's just trying to bugger people around and make life difficult um, for no good reason. Yeah, it's interesting. I just, I just had to look up the deckhand's talent there because it sounds like a really powerful talent. It and is, yeah. uh, I notice that it doesn't require a darkness point. A lot of talents require that you give the GM a darkness point. Mm. And it isn't a one-use talent either. Um, you know, there's a lot of, particularly those... Um, uh, particularly group talents, they say okay. you know you can only use this once per session, but it, uh, doesn't, it, it doesn't say that. Well, I, I I'd assume that it was. So I think I will be playing uh, on that talent and letting you know, letting the players know that it will be a one shot one shot talent per per scenario. I think. Yeah. Otherwise, I think that might never, be useful limitation. Otherwise, but it, yeah, it touches on our previous discussion about players feeling incompetent. And obviously, yes, in terms of combat, at least, your players aren't feeling at all incompetent, either hand-to-hand no. -hand or, or in space. No, um, one of them, uh, maybe it's just the die rolls haven't gone well, but I mean, the, the, uh, the adversaries have been, or I thought I'd set them at quite a, you know, quite a difficult level, but clearly, clearly not on those occasions. Um, yeah, well, spend more darkness points. I think that's going to be your mantra, isn't it? And it's yes. definitely mine. I'm spending them all <laughs> against you as a player there. Yeah, that's, um, oh, well, I, I expect nothing less, frankly. <laughs> now, we've already gone over our allotted time. We have, um, we? Obviously, once I've edited all the swear words out, it'll be a lot shorter. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just thought we ought to say a little bit about um, what we plan for the future, if people yes. are interested in hearing us. And I think there is a discussion about darkness points that, is begging to be had just there what is. we've most, been talking about today so most definitely. that'll definitely be there um anything else that you can think of that we should have as a priority well i think we should talk about space combat because it's a bit different it's uh it's designed to involve all the players rather than just the pilot and it's uh, it's got a lot of potential so i think we could talk about that Mm, yeah, yeah, and I'm very interested to talk about that because I've been reading up about Cruiser 3 in charge of Class 3 ships as well, so we yeah. ought to have that discussion. Before we do that, we'd yeah. we'd like to get word from listeners that it's something that you'd like to listen to, so yeah. do feedback to us. We'll be publicising this podcast on, on all the social media that we can think of, and so it's probably worth feeding back 
on that on the, wherever you wherever you discovered it. I think the best way to contact us directly is to use Twitter on at the Coriolis Cast. Yeah. Yep. Excellent. So, I think that's all we've got time for, don't you think, Matthew? Until next time. If there is a next time. <laughs> it's goodbye from us, and may the icons bless your adventures. Goodbye. Presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods. With music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Fontfan. 